Hello and welcome to Conversations With. I'm Courtney. And I'm Keith. And we're the clinical team here at Burton's Academy. With our combined passion for monitoring and ventilation, we're here to rewind and remind you on the foundations and principles used to form the knowledge and understanding in everyday anaesthesia. Hello and welcome to series three of our podcast. I'm here with Courtney Scales and today we're going to be talking about oxygen. We're going to be talking over the next three episodes about oxygen as it is a huge subject. Today we're going to be concerned really with talking about getting oxygen from the bottle to the patient and getting them into the lungs. And then um, the next podcast, we'll talk about what happens when oxygen arrives at the lungs and how it then filters down through the patient and gets to those mitochondria that need it. So this is a huge subject. When I first thought, started thinking about it, Courtney, I thought, well, uh, oxygen, well, which I said a little bit about um, difference between 21% and 100%, um, there's a few things, probably take about 10 minutes, very, very short podcast. But actually, once you start getting into it, it's a phenomenal subject. And so now we've spread it over three podcasts. So... Um, uh, welcome, Courtney. Um, uh, nice to see you again. I've been been a little while, so let's uh, let's just start talking about oxygen, shall we? I think you know it's something we're all familiar with in the sense that we know what it is. It's there in every operating theatre, but maybe we're not all too familiar with you know, um, how much you get in a bottle, what concentrations in a bottle, what concentrations in a um, these new oxygen concentrators, that sort of thing. Um, what's your experience of oxygen concentrators? Have you used them? Yes, I have used them. Um, I've been in practices where we've had cylinders, we've had liquid oxygen, and we've also had concentrators as well. So I know that they're getting a little bit more quieter, which is good from when I first started to use them you know, over a decade ago and they were rattling around and you hated being in the room with them, but definitely used oxygen concentrators before um, and haven't come across personally many problems, uh, but I think that could be because I've got what I would consider a nice kind of base knowledge on how they work and, and some of their limitations as well. So hopefully we, we can share that with everybody that's listening. Yeah, I think concentrators have got a real place now. As you say, originally they were noisy and often they were very uh, good heat generators. and really They were so hot. Yeah. Trying to do a yeah. dental in those horrible little dental rooms with this huge loud generator that was warming the room up. I just, I think that's probably where I've got my association with uh, yeah. not wanting to go in for a dental procedure. But um, I think they really have a place now, and they're always getting quieter, and they're cheaper. But it, it, it's a great way to produce oxygen. And there's a lot of criticism leveled at them. They say, oh, you know, some of them are only 93%. But as we'll come on to discuss, I have to say, well, what's wrong with 93%? Yeah. You know, what's wrong with 80%? What's wrong with 60%? So we'll, we'll cover some of those questions as we go on. Um, maybe we just go back to bottles. Everybody's familiar with the bottles, so you've got the... Probably the, the the most common is going to be the little bottles, the size E, I believe they are, um, fit on the side of your own setting machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, got that index key to to, to lock them in place, um, and you know we get about six hundred eighty liters from a, a standard bottle. Um, that just to put that into context, you know if you're running um, an anaesthetic on a bottle on a size E cylinder and it's new when you start and your patient's running it. Yeah, six liters a minute you've only got about um two hours of oxygen there um obviously at three liters a minute you've got four hours but it just gives you an idea of how much time you've got so that's not a full you know day's operating really so you need to be aware you know how long those bottles will last but i guess that's a rare occurrence most people are going to be um plumbing into a, a wall outlet where they've got mm-hmm. um either it's coming from a, a 
uh, a generator was coming from a, a bigger source. It also needed liquid oxygen uh, in, in some of the bigger ones. Um, but it's 100%. Um, and I think that raises some, some questions as to why do we need 100%? You know, you and I are breathing very happily at 21%. We don't actually have any real problems unless we start to have physiological problems. So why, when we anesthetize our, our patients, why do we have this need or feel we have a need to go to 100%? I think that's a question that um, uh, doesn't really get answered, doesn't even get asked. I don't think real. Um, but of course, using 100% guarantees or lit virtually guarantees you get good PaO2, good oxygen levels in the blood. I think that's what we're we're doing it for. Now, it is interesting, I think, in the medical world that they only run at 30, 35%. Mm. I do remember having a friend that she was training as a human. She was a vet nurse and she was training then as a human anesthetic technician. And she's like, oh my gosh, they're only giving really low mixtures of oxygen. And I'm thinking, oh, your patients must all be hypoxemic. <laughs> but really, we're you know, massively, we're running such a high, high concentration. And yeah, I think we always go, well, why? We think, well, our patients must be hypoventilating under anesthesia and not taking enough breaths. So maybe we'll just try and push more oxygen in that way. But I do remember being quite shocked by hearing more about the human world, <laughs> as I put in inverted commas, that they just you know, run kind of fraction of inspired concentrations about 30, 35. Yeah. Yeah. One, I mean, one, as you know, one of my favorite books is, um, is this nun's, um, applied respiratory <laughs> physiology. And, and I, I was looking at that a while ago and it's interesting that, you know, the reason for that 35% is if you just increase the oxygen fraction from 21% to 30%, um, for a patient that's hypoventilating. So for whatever reason, they're just not ventilating enough, no pathology, but just hypoventilating then that increase is sufficient to bring any hypoventilating patient back to a normal arterial PaO2. And that's why they, they stick to that, because that means that uh, under all circumstances, uh, pathology aside, then they have um, guaranteed PaO2s of 80 millimetres of mercury or more, So, uh, which is great. And I, I was that one in the lungs? Uh, sorry, in, in our um, physiology book, was it? Yeah, that's in nuns, yeah. Oh, yeah, and then I've got another little bit of some vet, veterinary literature as well that basically just echoes the same thing to say, you know, if our patient is sedated for x-rays maybe, they don't have an ET tube in place. If you do provide them with some very close flow-by or a mask, you just yeah, simply put in there uh, the fraction of inspired oxygen up to 0.3 and prevents that hypoxemia that we get with that respiratory depression from there sedation so yeah it's exactly. echoed humans vet med we don't need these really high concentrations just that little bit extra was enough to prevent the hypoxemia that's right so now we've got a kind of a benchmark figure of, of 30 35 percent or 0.3 as our fractionally inspired so that makes our requirement for 100 percent appear less and less you know stringent doesn't it yeah so okay so uh, what, what would be interesting and i know you got some some numbers on this um Let's look at how good uh, oxygenation procedures are. So, so you're worried about your patient. You know, you think it's um, potentially hypoxic. So, you're going to give it some pre-oxygenation, and there are a number of methods for doing that. So, should we just look at the um, uh, the simple ones, the sort of you know nasal cannula, masks, mm -hmm. um, uh, flow by that type of thing? I'll say I think you got some numbers which I think are quite illuminating as to 
as to what you can achieve. Because you think, don't you, that if you put a mask on a patient, that actually, really, if you're given a hundred percent oxygen pod, basically it's going to be inspiring hundred percent oxygen. But that's far from the truth, isn't it? Oh, it's so far from the truth. And I think we're probably all very familiar with grabbing the breathing system, turning on the oxygen flow, putting it in front of our patient's face and hoping for the best. But really, half the time we're kind of preoxygenating their cheek or their ear, or the moment that they turn away, they lose those benefits from preoxygenation as well. So in terms of if we want to do a really good job with preoxygenation, we really need to provide it via a face mask. Um, so we do have one study, which quite a few people might already be quite familiar with. It's the McNally et al. 2009 study. I've been talking about this one for years. So um, this is where we talk about proxygenations by saying providing 100% of oxygen delivered by a face mask for three minutes can delay the onset of hypoxemia for up to five minutes. So that means if we can't get um, access to that airway, maybe they are French bulldogs or they have a lot of edema, something like that. If we can pre-oxygenate them for at least three minutes, then we can delay the onset of hypoxemia. But we also need to talk about how well that face mask actually sits and at which flow rate we're providing the oxygen through that mask. As well. And also, what, what's the what's the net resultant, yeah. you know, fractional inspired value? Because it's not it's not hundred percent, is it? No, no. I mean, if we don't put a diaphragm around, if we don't put that black diaphragm around the mask as well, we've got room air coming in there, or perhaps we've got a patient that's faces nuzzled so tightly into the um, the face mask as well that there's a lot of carbon dioxide in there as well. Um, but, you know, if we do have, we are using a face mask, this particular study did mention that if you have it at a flow rate of 100 mils per kick per minute, um, it will can delay the hypoxemia for up to five minutes. Um, if we only have a breathing system waves in front of a face, it's really got to be within two centimetres of their nose. Uh, otherwise, you know, just by two centimetres in front of their nose, we'll only get the percentage up to, and that's up to 40% as a maximum. So we've yeah. got a nice preoxygenation in the room occurring. Um, so however, basically if, what, what we're saying is you've, you've got 100% oxygen coming out of the wall and you're putting yeah. it in front of the patient and you think, well, this is brilliant because this animal is now breathing in the I'm feeding it 100%. right to its face, but actually, because of the mixing and everything, in fact, it's not the sole source of, of its, uh, the gas going down its, its uh, trachea, it'll only get up to 40%. Yes, 40, 40% by the nose, and then if you have the face mask on, and we're talking a nice, tight-fitting mask at appropriate flow rates, it's only going to be 70 to 80%. Yeah, okay. And I think another fact that I heard in, in hospitals where they use um, uh, nasal cannulae, is that even with those at you know, relatively high flow rates, which I think are about 10 litres a minute or something um, in in, the, in hospitals, they only get up to 55%. Uh, yeah, and we've got the same the same thing for for our vet med patients as well. And it's not very often we're going to be pre-oxygenating our patient with nasal prongs or nasal cannulas unless they already have them placed, mm. um, which generally means they're, they're quite sick of that, already needing that kind of oxygen therapy. And then we talk about what if we put it up one nostril? What if we put it up two nostrils? So if we place it just up one nostril, then we can really only get about 40%, um, which is kind of very similar to, to flow by. And then yeah. if we place it up two nostrils, then we can really only get up to 60% as well. Um, unless, of course, like you mentioned, if we start really increasing the fresh gas flow, then we can start to see some changes. So for example, 
if you have um, one nasal cannula with a flow rate quite low, so say 50 mils per kilogram per minute, then you only get that flow, then you only get that concentration of, of 40%. But if you double that flow rate, still in one nostril, then you get about 50%. But of course, patients could become quite uncomfortable when you start to push really, really high flows up their yeah. nose. And, and the other thing I think, Paulie, is you say 50 mils per kilogram per minute. I mean, yes, it's quite low in the overall scheme of things, but if you take a five kilo cat, that's still um, 250 mils per minute. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's low compared to anesthesia, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, what am I trying to say? It, it's, it's surprising how much oxygen you're given and how much isn't actually being, being received. Yeah, by our patients. Right, yeah. Okay. Especially if our canteen and, you know, if we've got, if we're trying to put oxygen up and then we've got perhaps, I don't know, like, I mean, no one can really pass cannulas that well up, up French bulldogs or put them in there on theirs because they're not there. But then if we also have a patient that is um, breathing really quickly and panting through their mouth as well, what kind of effect are we getting with wafting a bit of oxygen in front of them? There's so many factors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the other thing that, that uh, you know we need to consider really is how in practice do you present that flow by? We, we talked about this before. There's a couple of things I want to just allude to on, on things that we've already covered, actually. One is um, you said that, you know, um, a, a pre-oxygenation in that McNally study gave them um, several minutes of um, oxygen reserve. Yeah. Just want to point out that goes back to all our discussions about FRC, functional residual capacity, because that's what's really um, doing that, because there's very little capacity in blood. You know, it's not really being stored in blood. It's only being stored in the in the lung as that, as that um, um, extra capacity there. So actually, that's interesting. What I want to actually just think about, um, go back to a couple of things we've already talked about in some podcasts. Um, one is in that McNally, McNally study, you mentioned that pre-oxygenation gave degree of... Um, uh, uh, coverage they got oxygen for a period of time was it three to five minutes i think you said different circumstances yeah yeah um and that really goes back to us talking about the functional residual capacity that's what we're doing we're filling up that that lung capacity with oxygen as a reserve because very little is actually stored in the blood itself so all we're doing is using the the frc to store that out uh, and the other thing of course uh, and i know this is something that it's a very practical thing and we have talked about it before but flow by often achieved by people turning on the oxygen uh, flow meter on, on their circuits and um, then putting the nozzle or the, the, the white piece at the patient's nose um, next to your rabbit or whatever it is, holding it there and hoping you'll get um, extra oxygen. We have to bear in mind that in some of these surgical systems, that that actually often results in absolutely no gas or oxygen <laughs> appearing down that tube at all, or very, very little, depending on it depends on resistance of the APL valve, resistance of the soda lime, other things. Um, and we did talk about if you really want to force air down that tube, you've got to close the APL valve. Um, I, I think you've got experience with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was fascinating by only just kind of learning that you really do have to make sure you've got the right circle system to be given flow by because really movement of gas around that circle system is determined by the patient taking a breath and moving those valves, isn't it? And and very often pushing gas. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when you do turn on the fresh gas flow and you assume it's all going down, you know, through the cylinder, sorry, through the the uh, the carbon dioxide absorbing canister, down the tubing, out the YPs, and then a little bit back up the tubing as well. It's really not the case. Half the time, it's just going around and around the uh, carbon dioxide absorbing canister. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, this. I think now back to all of these patients that are probably preoxygenated. Well, I thought I was preoxygenating for my whole career, and really, what I was doing was just putting a, a noisy breathing system that sounded. You know, you feel like there is air coming out of it because if you listen to it, you can hear air moving in it, but it's probably all just echoing up like a seashell from it moving around the um from the canister. From the canister. Oh, and yeah. I just think. What have I done? <laughs> like, what yeah. have I thought I was doing with all my circle systems? Especially because they were just so, so common where where I used to work. That was, you walked in and there was going to be a circle on the wall. We were going to be peroxygenating our patient, but uh, was any oxygen actually going down it? So, yeah, just understanding now that we really have to close that, um, that exhaust valve so that the oxygen's got nowhere else to go but build up pressure and then come down the white piece. That's it's so that simple, isn't it? changed everything. The one thing you need to do is just close the APL valve during your period of pre-oxygenation and then you get oxygen flushing out the, um, the end of the wire of the white piece. Yeah. And, yeah. and then please open the, don't forget to open it. I think that's probably the scary bit is being caught up in the induction of the anesthesia and then being like, have I Yeah, not opening that valve. So, yeah. just have to be very careful with that. Yeah, but then having said all that, we've now got you know nice oxygen coming out the end of our our circle and our our white piece, but it is of limited value. It's not going to give us the the oxygen levels that maybe we we're, we're expecting. I think yeah, uh, especially in practice, I thought you know putting a face mask on or doing you know close flow by uh, for your smaller patients um, was going to be a, a a great benefit, but of course. Uh, it, it's of limited benefit. And yeah, it's got to be better than not doing it. But mm-hmm. it's not, maybe not giving us the the uh, the benefits that we think they might be. And I think that brings us on to um, to another topic, really, which is oxygen tents. Uh, oh yes. I mean, oxygen tents are are a great favourite in practice. You know, they think you know. I don't know how many Disney cats and dogs I've seen sitting in oxygen tents and what have you. But I think we need to explore this in a little bit of detail here. How much oxygen are they getting? How do you calculate the flow that you need to put into the into the into the cage? Um, what sort of cage you're going to use? What sort of time and uh, show it's how you're going to use? And how much is it going to cost? Really, um, you know, if you're using bottled oxygen, that's not a cheap that's not a cheap option. We'll show in a minute um, that you need to use really high flow rates. So say you use ten liters a minute. Um, you know, you've only got sixty-eight minutes from um, yeah, from your six hundred and eighty-liter bottle. So that's one bottle gone in, in an hour. So is your if you're really going to use those those bottles, is the practice going to support that cost? And are they going to pass that on to the customer? It's got to be taken into account, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So okay, so let's have a little talk about auction tents. Um, before before we go into the sort of technical details, um. How often do you think oxygen tents get used in practice and and for other reasons? Oh, goodness. I feel like depending, like certainly if, if, you know, working in perhaps some inner city emergency hospitals, you know, like you said, a dyspnea cat, a cat that comes in with heart failure, um, a French bulldog in the summer that's been out on a walk that needs oxygen, 
I think very, very often, commonly it, it's used. Um, and then we still got practices that will have the collapsible cages that then pop up that they bring out every few weeks for the exact same patient. So I think it's extremely common that we have, mm. you know, we're utilizing oxygen tents, oxygen cages. But yeah, like as with everything, the more I've learned about these and really had to take a step back and think practically about the size of these against the flow rates we're providing into them. I'm like, I don't think we're doing anything, especially when we open that door every half an hour to, you know, another vet is auscultating the thorax. Um, the nurse is putting in more eye drops every single time we open that door. Yeah. Okay, everything changes. So I am very excited to talk about oxygen yeah. changes. Yeah. And of course, yeah, I, I'm checking in now on every half an hour is good practice and, 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 you know, may even be more frequent, but I think, yeah, we'll show in a minute how, how detrimental that is to the, uh, the actual oxygen content yeah. of a cage. Um, Okay, so let's think about a standard cage. Not, not take a big cage. Let's take a uh, medium-sized cage. It's fifty centimeters, half a meter wide, half a meter tall. And they're often a little bit deeper than they are wide, so maybe seventy-five centimeters deep. So now we've got. I'll do the math. It's okay. That, now we've got <laughs> 200, 220 liters thereabouts, two 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 five liters of space. Which actually, when you put it in that term, two hundred twenty-five liters is quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And if you're putting in two litres a minute, how much? Two litres into 225. It just doesn't sound like it's going to make much difference, is it? So I've got some figures here. So I don't, you may remember the answer to this. Because we did this on our little test. But um, if we put two litres a minute into that size cage, um, and we're using 100% um, oxygen, can you remember the, the time it takes to get to 80% or thereabouts? Oh, I've got even just after an hour. Um, so, yeah, we had our cage. We ran in our oxygen at two litres per minute. And after an hour, we only had a concentration of 52%, just over 50%. Yeah. And, it, and it, the higher you get, the slower, slower the process um, becomes. You know, you to try and get the oxygen concentrations to, to get higher and higher, it just levels off a bit. It takes three hours at two litres a minute to get it to 80%. That's phenomenal. No one I know is no. running in two litres a minute for three hours. And anyway, you know, that's a phenomenal amount of time um, because of the volume involved. <laughs> so, yeah, um, just to explain to everybody who's listening, um, Courtney and I set up a, uh, an oxygen tent. We had a... Uh, a sealed cage it was it measured about the dimensions i've just given and we put an analyzer an icon oxygen analyzer um at the bottom of the cage and we put an icon analyzer um at the top of the cage so we had two measurements independent measurements of oxygen levels and we flowed in oxygen um uh, we, from a, a concentrator which was running at about 93 percent i think um uh, something of that region and we ran it at 10 litres a minute, and we ran it at 2 litres a minute. And as I said, the 2 litres a minute took at least 3 hours to get to 80%. Um, when we ran it at 10 litres a minute, um, it took um, about 40 minutes, 35 to 40 minutes to get to 80%. And that's still a lot, and that's 10 litres a minute. And I honestly don't know anybody who's putting oxygen into cages at 10 litres. I think because this really hasn't been looked at, discussed, 
talk about. We look at the flow meter, you know, when you go up to 10 liters per minute, that flow becomes so turbulent. You watch your flow meter go, oh, making a noise, rattling around. We all go, oh gosh, that's scary. We need us the oxygen that high. Let's let's run it lower so it doesn't make that, you know, yeah. wanky turbulent noise. So we just think, oh, we'll run it lower. And then someone will say, let's taper off the oxygen and see how our patient's actually going. I'm thinking, I've been tapering off for we haven't even got to a level worth taking from. No, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. So I think the big sort of point maybe coming out of this is if you have an oxygen tent, you've got to either underestimate the capabilities of what you're given and therefore give you know very, very high flow rates, um, or um, preferably you have to have some means of monitoring the oxygen level in in that cage so that you can assess what you're doing. Because to be fair, if you put in two liters a minute, um, even for half an hour, I think our figures show it only gets up to about 30% or something. Yeah. It, it, it's really, really poor. Um, and the other astonishing um, figure is that if you if you do manage to get the cage up to you know something like 80 to 90% um, and you open that door, that front door, um, you have less than 20 seconds before full exchange of uh, air occurs and the whole thing drops down to 21 percent so you you know you can put in 10 liters a minute 40 to 45 minutes three quarters of an hour and you get your oxygen up just about get it to 80 percent or 85 percent and then you know someone says oh i need just need to move that canyon uh, that canyon iv's blown let's just move that you know and it's it's lost so there's some real practical um, considerations from, from using um, oxygen tents, or, yeah. uh, as we call them. But I think the advent of the, what we talked about earlier, the oxygen concentrators is a great boon. Well, it certainly sounds like it's going to be a lot cheaper. Yeah, because you just turn them on, you know, you've only got electricity running costs now. You can run those at 10 litres a minute. Most of them will just go up to 8 or 10 litres a minute. So you need to just turn those on, whack it up to as, as high as it can go, and then, and just leave them there. Mm-hmm. But ideally, have some form of um, measuring the, the oxygen levels. And it's not it's not undoable, though, is it? Measuring the levels of oxygen is not undoable. These cage doors, these plastic perspex things that slip over a normal kennel to make an oxygen cage, they come with a dial that tells you temperature and humidity. But in terms of getting a little wee device, kind of the size of your computer mouse, really, that you can put in the cage to monitor the concentration that you're actually giving the patient. For me, that has changed everything. And, and I, I I did take one actually to um, to a locum shift I was doing for a very, very poorly cat. And I just put the oxygen analyzer at the same level as what the patient's head was at. Because if you think about these patients that are on oxygen, they're not often sitting upright, wagging their tail, taking these lovely breaths. So, you know, they're on the, the floor of their cage they're dyspneic, they're hunched, they're low down on their cage. Um, so actually, I just put this this analyzer and stuck it to the side of the cage at the level of that cat's head. And then I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is very poorly cat. And when I turned it on, it was only given a percentage of like 28. I knew immediately, okay, let's turn up the flow. So actually, I've been able to adjust how I'm giving my patients care with this simple analyzer, the size of like your computer mouse. You stick it on the wall next to the patient and that means, you know, when we got that patient out, we gave more drugs, we put eyelid in, whatever we did, we closed the cage door. We were able just to turn up the oxygen flow super high, you know, get that flow meter of rattling, um, watch that concentration change quite quickly. 
and then lower it to, to kind of maintain it. And that changed patient care for me. I don't think I could ever um, go back to just assuming anymore. And these little devices, they are, they're not massively expensive either. Oh, absolutely. No, they're, I think they're just under 300 pounds or something. Not for the cost of what we charge ox um, clients for oxygen therapy as well, which is hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they're completely doable. Yeah. And so with that, we could begin to see what sort of levels we're, we're achieving. Now we know, I think we just previously said that, you know, different levels, uh, uh, maybe not a mask, a mask is probably the best, but any other sort of uh, oxygenation techniques are going to get you up to sort of 50, 55%. So casually, but that does of course require someone to sit with it and hold that in place, you know, to make sure they're still getting the oxygen. So I think they have their, these tents do have their place mm. um, for, you know, um, anything where you want oxygen above 55% or 40%, um, you know, which isn't high. We don't have to get the oxygen in there up to 200%. Anything above, you know, sort of 40, 50% is going to be a bonus to the animal and the greater the better. Um, but I think the big point we're, we're trying to make here is that don't put it on two litres a minute because you, you may as well really not bother you know, you're not going to see a change. And once you open that door, you've lost it. So it's got to be 10 litres a minute. Plus, I think some things like having a simple chart on the door, paper chart that says, you know, you know have, a, have an option analyzer in there, a little icon analyzer or something like that in there that measures it. Um, and right on the door, door last opened and have an, a time there so that people know when it was last opened. So they have some idea, you know, of how long that animal has been exposed to those, those levels of oxygen. Uh -huh. um, okay. I mean, that was a really interesting study that we did, I think, too. That was great. We had quite, yeah. a, bit of, quite a bit of tea and coffee, I think, as we sat there and watched our oxygen change for hours. We were chatting and charting every five minutes, watching it change. And, but it was fascinating. I think we keep looking at each other going, is this, is it, what? This is, this should, everyone should know this. This is going to change everything about how we use these cages. So it was a very good morning. Yeah, and, and I think one subtle thing came out of it, which is actually, although it was subtle, I think it's very, very important, is that that big factor about opening the cage door and losing all that oxygen levels that you've just spent, you know, two hours or whatever, getting nice levels at, is because it's a front opening door. And these devices that uh, I think you just mentioned them earlier about these portable devices, the sort of collapsible ones that you... You basically, On the buster you know, kennels, yeah. Buster kennel something, which have a, a door at the top. And that's a game changer, really, because that means that, you know, when you open that at the top to assist the animal, you know, the exchange of oxygen is very, very limited. So you will get some loss of um, oxygen, but it'd be nowhere near like um, you would with a front opening cage. So if you're really serious about um, um, improving oxygenation of your patients for long term, so these are really... You know, the, I, I'm always thinking about these dyspnea cats. They just, I can just see them, you know, in my head. They're just like really struggling and they do need that oxygen. They they would be brilliant in a off opening um, device, you know, whereby you can open the top, reposition, do what you need to do, and you're still going to maintain relatively high levels. Now, we haven't, our listeners actually had a chance to do the test on that, It'd be interesting to do the test on that and see what the changes in oxygen levels were. That'd be very interesting. By doing that, but but you know, 
common sense suggests that you know it, it's not going to be anywhere near the level of um, the exchange from opening a opening a you know, a cage which is then fully open, isn't it? Once it's open, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, um, interim suggestions are use use a, a one that you can access from the top, put in ten liters a minute, and use an analyzer to indicate the, the levels that um, that are in there. Okay, so that's kind of you know getting an idea then about um, delivery of oxygen from that uh, anesthetic machine. Through the through the circle and or breathing system to the patient and um, improving oxygen levels and the sort of levels we need to achieve we only really need to, in a healthy animal to to go up to sort of thirty thirty five percent of oxygen compared to the twenty one. Um, and I guess then I think what we've done then is we've got oxygen into the lung um, and we've got this functional residual capacity which is going to uh, hold the lung and and again i think you know people may not have, have heard that previous podcast um if you pre-oxygenate with um 100 oxygen yourselves and you and i have a, a frc that residual capacity of about three liters um it will enable us to hold our breath then for several minutes if we have 100 because it just acts as that reserve and that's what we're doing with our patients you know uh, we're giving them that reserve so that during the period of intubation, um, set up connection to the anesthetic machine. If it's to a um, to a, a circle system, you know, allowing some time for denitrogenation, you've actually got that oxygen reserve there. Um, so, so that's okay. We've discussed that. We've got our oxygen to our patient. Um, so now we need to, I guess, start thinking about, and this will be part of possibly the next podcast as well. What happens to oxygen once it's in that lung? How does that get from that lung tissue into the patient? And what's the requirements of that patient? And where does it need to get to to actually have its effect? Well, that's a long story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Talking about um, crossing the areola barrier, getting into the arterial or into the pulmonary circulation, arterial circulation, and then out through the capillary beds and then all the way down to those mitochondria. And it's quite interesting that we start off with um, oxygen levels and tensions in in the lung, which are particularly high, um, maybe 400 millimeters of mercury, even higher um, if we're given oxygen. Oxygen, and what the mitochondria want, or what they actually what they want, what they get, they get two to four millimeters of mercury of oxygen. So there's a so we can see there's a huge potential between the lung and the mitochondria for problems to arise. Yeah. Um, and the risk of encroaching on on some of the stuff we're going to cover next time, I would just like to talk about the um, oxygen carrying capacity of blood and the impact of giving extra oxygen on what it does. Because I think we're probably familiar. I know I know you are Courtney with the oxygen dissociation curve. It's something that is in our heads when we're thinking about oxygen saturation levels, um, the effect of or the implication of seeing your pulse ox change from 96 to 93 to 88. We understand we're on, on a slippery slope then over a steep part of the curve. Um, and I think we need to just you know, wind this up and just put in context what, what the effect of having 100% oxygen has on the P, like oxygen carrying capacity of blood. 
Yeah, I, I found this quite striking because once oxygen hemoglobin is saturated, um, that's the major component, isn't it, for carrying oxygen in the blood? And then you've got the dissolved component, yeah? And you would think if you're, if the oxygen carrying capacity of blood is, say, 20 mils per deciliter, that's the standard figure, 20 mils per deciliter, so 20 mils per 100, 20 mils of oxygen in 100 mils of blood, yeah? That's now, that's in 21%. So you'd think, wouldn't you, if you went up to 100% oxygen, that's that's going to be five times. So we're going to have more. we're going to have we're going to have a, um, five times. We're going to have a hundred mils of oxygen per hundred uh, mils of blood, but unfortunately, it doesn't work that way because once you saturate that hemoglobin, the only way you can increase extra oxygen in the blood is what's dissolved in the blood. So I was looking um, at a very interesting statistic the other day, and in air, I think um, I think it's. If you do the math, it's about 19.3 mils of oxygen per 100 mils of blood at 21%. Okay. If you put it on a patient on 100% oxygen, then the oxygen carrying capacity then goes up to something like 21.3 or 22.3 mils. So you've gone from 21% oxygen to 100%, but the oxygen carrying capacity of blood has only increased from 19.3. 22 to about two mils of extra oxygen because it can only after oxygen has become or hemoglobin has become fully saturated uh, it can only then dissolve in blood so then the only way to get more oxygen than that is to start using hyperbaric chambers and that's something i i would like to talk about as well um about hyperbaric chambers i don't know if that's a, a topic for today um uh, we'll certainly we'll cover it in the next uh couple of podcasts but um we don't tend to use that uh obviously very much in, in vet medicine but it does have some interesting implications for and, and gives you some insights into the behavior of hemoglobin and what happens when you put it at higher pressure. Um, and maybe, one of, maybe one of the last things we can talk about in oxygen uh, today is this concern maybe. I, I hear it um, fairly frequently is um, oxygen toxicity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have I actually we, received messages about oxygen toxicity before, yeah. so I th- very hot topic. Need, it is a hot topic. I think we need to put that into context as to as to what constitutes a, a you know toxic dose of oxygen. I mean the the implications are quite severe, but I think we need to to be clear that you know six hours of an orthopedic or hundred percent oxygen is not going to lead to a case of oxygen toxicity. Um, I don't know if you've got any cited references the my references come from my main sort of um, physiology textbooks and online. Yes, reading. I, I do have, um, I do have uh, one of the references from one of my favourite books. If it's not the BSAVA Anesthesia Analgesia, it's the BSAVA Emergency Critical Care, and they, they kind of state that if you have a concentration of oxygen of over sixty percent for over twelve hours then we may start to get some oxygen toxicity. And I think the word toxicity sounds very scary as well. We think, oh, the patient's, you know, this is, but it could result from anything really just from um, like inflammatory injuries uh, to free radicals. It, it, there's a huge range of yeah. toxicities. Exactly. And I think, um, again, looking at the, the, the studies I've looked at, the, the primary effects, the initial effects are, are lung-based. 
the lung epi epithelium base. It seems to be that those high levels of oxygen start to cause um, some changes in the uh, lung epithelium, and you may get an inflammatory response to that um, initially. And yeah, so usually sixty percent for more than twelve hours. Um, humans seem very happy to give. Um, uh, they say hundred percent even for twenty four hours before significant effects are seen. I think think basically what what that just tells us is that oxygen toxicity is a potential problem, but it's not a problem in our day to day. You know, I don't, I can't think of a, a situation where you know a single operation in a day is something of concern. Oxygen toxicity. I don't think we're operating for that. <laughs> thankfully, not that long in medicine. And we know in our patients that are in the ICU and the oxygen tents, for example, we know that we're in and out of them so often that they're not going to be at that static high, high, high concentration for the day. Uh, period of time, no. Um, and we, do, we don't tend to, you know, like the human uh, patients, we don't tend to have people on ICU ventilators for two, three weeks or even months. So, so that's not a consideration. Um, I just wanted to put that in there because when we talk about oxygen tents, you know, a cat may be in oxygen tent overnight or something, and people get, well, what about oxygen and uh, toxicity? I think the potential effects of oxygen toxicity from an oxygen tent that will struggle to get to 80% anyway, um, um, I would need to be there for, you know, uh, 24 hours plus continuously, are slim compared to the benefits of, of obtained by actually giving the patient the need of extra oxygen to make sure. Um, so I think it's been a bit of general talk to cover quite a lot of these topics. And as I said, it's um, it's something that we've set our mind to talk about. And we've now got another two podcasts to talk about. And next podcast, we're going to talk more about the, the physiology, uh, how oxygen is transported, what inhibits its transportation, where it goes to, what inhibits that, that transport from, from the blood back into the tissues and the effects in the tissues. Um, and then the last one, I think the third podcast about oxygen, we'll start to look at our interactions with oxygen, how we measure it, how we control it, how we um, control how it behaves in the patient, how we respond to problems in the, in the patient. Um, things like hypoxia, uh, a nice simple term hypoxia, but of course we have anemic hypoxia, we have histotoxic hypoxia, we have yeah, hypoxia from chronic output problems. There's a lot of forms of hypoxia, so we need to uh, talk about those as well. So quite a lot to come. Uh, I think uh, this is a good point, I think, to maybe close the discussion on the delivery of oxygen and the, um, the implications of, of how we provide it and what levels the animal gets today. Uh, unless you want some closing comments there, Courtney. I think my only closing comment that just reminded me when you said we've talked about the delivery of oxygen is the actual cylinders itself just wanted to tell everybody if they're starting to get new look cylinders oh, yes. through their yeah. practice. Um, they are actually changing. By 2025, all of our cylinders in practice will look a little bit different if you haven't already started to receive the newer um, the newer look. So, like, for example, let's take oxygen, which we're, we're very familiar with. Normally, it's, it's in our cylinders, it's got a black body with a white shoulder. Um, and that's going to be very quickly considered the old style cylinder and the newer style cylinders. They'll all be white. So every cylinder will be white. Doesn't matter, you know, oxygen's got a black body, medical ear is the gray body with the black and white shoulder, 
And the other one that we're familiar with is nitrous oxide, which has a blue body. So that's all going to be the old style. And by 2025, every cylinder will be white. The shoulders will still be the same as the shoulders are now. So oxygen will be white. Um, medical air will be black and white and the nitrous oxide will be blue. But actually they will have their name in very big print down the side of the cylinder, no matter what kind of um, gas it is. So also the the text color that's written. So for example, the nitrous oxide is currently in a blue cylinder, although it will be in a white cylinder soon with a blue shoulder, it will have blue writing down the side that says nitrous oxide. So these have started to already appear in practices because I did have a friend send on a picture and say, is this, I'm pretty sure this is still oxygen, but this just arrived. Um, and I, I was like, you know, it's definitely still oxygen. It's all just changing by 2025, the entire revamp will be complete, but they are just changing color. So if you do see something out of the ordinary and you have a white cylinder body appear, um, you've just got one of the newer cylinders. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I think that will wind up what we're going to say today. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back um, very shortly in our next episode to talk about the physiological aspects of oxygen. Thanks for listening. Bye now. Bye. Later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Don't forget to follow our podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And feel free to share this with your team. If you have any questions or feedback for us, or simply want to know more about what you've just heard, please feel free to send us an email at clinicalsupport at burtons.uk.com. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.